What I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to work my way through the, uh, the book of Daniel, chapter 9. But before we do that, I want to give you guys, since we normally, if we would do something like this, we would have worked our way through chapters 1 through 8. Uh, and I think there's some key things to look at before we try to break down chapter 9. So I'm going to be in chapter 9. I'll do it verse by verse. Uh, but before we get there, I want to show you and remind us uh, of a couple things. So you can turn to chapter 1 for the first of those things. Uh, Pastor Brian was just in the men's meeting with us here this evening for dinner and was talking about how um, these characters, these men, many of them in the Old Testament, should really be in our minds like our heroes. Uh, and I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, uh, I went to Sunday school when I was little, and then around junior high and senior high, I was always battling back and forth. I knew I should read my Bible, but I was in high school, and sometimes I did and sometimes I didn't. But those times where I would get up and read, I'd be like, man, where should I read? And I would always just go back. I like the book of Daniel. There's something about it that, at least for me personally, uh, would always draw me back. And now that I think about it as I'm older, I think the Lord actually allowed some of these scenes to be so impactful so that it would fill our hearts and fill our minds with um, these things. Because in each one of these scenes, uh, there's powerful lessons. So uh, in Daniel chapter 1, if you're not familiar with the book of Daniel, this is taken from a time uh, after King David and after King Solomon, the nation of Israel split into the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms, and the northern kingdoms um, were taken captive to the Assyrians. Uh, and the southern two kingdoms um, were eventually besieged by a man named Nebuchadnezzar, who was the ruler of the Chaldeans uh, in this area. Now, this point in history is very dramatic. This is around 605 to 606 BC. There's lots of things taking place. Uh, but for the Bible's sake here, for the book of Daniel, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar come in, and he is going to take some of the young men from Israel captive as slaves back to the area of Babylon. And Babylon during this time was the world ruler. We're going to look at that in the next chapter. But for right now, uh, look at verse 6 of chapter 1. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And to them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave to Daniel the name of Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And if we were studying through this tonight, there's, there's a whole study here, but you could basically look at the beginning of verse 8 where it says, But Daniel... And in the beginning of verse 9, now God. There's a direct correlation between Daniel here as a young man in his heart sensing it was time to take a stand and God honoring that stand. And if you guys know the book of Daniel, you know how this story goes. Daniel and his friends decide to not indulge in what the king of Babylon was trying to do. He was trying to brainwash them. 
He was trying to bring them in and basically bribe them with all the things of Babylon so that they would think that Babylon is so great. And then when they brought the rest of the children of Israel to Babylon, Daniel and his friends would tell everybody else, hey, these guys are good. This is incredible. We shouldn't fight against them. Uh, These guys are are great. And Daniel here basically says, I'm not buying it (laughs) and I'm not going to enter into this. But he had to figure out a way to do it and not get his head chopped off. So he says to the chief here, listen, just do me a favor. Let me be tested. Just give us water and vegetables. Let's just keep this simple and see how this works out. And you guys hopefully know the story. Uh, You can look at verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king interviewed them, and among them none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the astrologers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. And we'll see what that verse means here in a second. But Daniel starts off making a big impact in Babylon. And as we're going to see, God is going to do some truly historic things during this period of history. And he's going to place Daniel right in the middle of it for a very specific purpose. And I'll show you what I think that is here. But look at uh, chapter 2, verse 31. Hopefully you guys know what happens next. God gives Nebuchadnezzar the most powerful man in the world at this moment, a dream, meaning God initiates it. God is the one who basically places this in Nebuchadnezzar's lap after he makes sure Daniel's right in the right spot to interpret it. It's pretty incredible. And Nebuchadnezzar does not know what the dream means. In fact, he panics and he threatens all of his wise men to the point where Daniel and his friends are going to get caught up in the middle of this And Daniel goes and prays, and God gives Daniel the interpretation of what the dream means. He shows him the dream and what it means. And that's where we come to in verse 31 here. And this really sets the stage, I believe, for chapter 9. And this is one of the keys to the book of Daniel. So Daniel comes in before the king, and he's going to tell him what his dream was and what it meant. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image... This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and it was awesome. And the image's head was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, and its belly and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you watched while a stone was cut without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces." Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff in the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom and power and strength and glory, 
And wherever the children of men dwell are the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven. He has given them into your hands and he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. And then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all of the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so that kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed." And that kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. And just to, to see Nebuchadnezzar's reaction, look at verse 46. And King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel. Now, I can almost guarantee you that had never happened before in Nebuchadnezzar's life, where he fell down on his face before one of his slaves. This was truly a unique experience. Nebuchadnezzar does not know what to do. He just falls down completely dumbstruck because of what Daniel had been given to tell him what the dream meant. And it truly was uh, incredible. Now, in this day, if you want to think about it like this, uh, obviously there's, there's no entertainment, there's no television, there's no internet. This dream and the interpretation of it early on in this experience. Now, by the time we get to chapter 9, Daniel's going to have been in Babylon for over 60 years. Chapter 2 is early on in this experience. So imagine once the word started to get out of the dream and what it meant. People weren't sitting around talking about all the things that we talk about. There wasn't all that much to talk about, to be honest. This would have captivated people's minds and their attention and would have caused them to ponder for years. What does that mean that there's going to be another kingdom inferior to the Babylonians that are going to take over, right? Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold, but Daniel says, after you, there's going to come another kingdom. They're going to be like silver, and there's going to be a kingdom after that that's going to be like bronze, and then a kingdom after that. And again, if you want to go through, Pastor Joe's gone through this uh, many times, does an incredible job of breaking down how the Medo-Persian Empire will come in, and they'll defeat the Babylonians, then the Grecians will come in, they'll defeat the Medo-Persians, and then the Romans will come in and just wipe out the Grecians. And all the way up to where this stone is cut out without hands and breaks in pieces some sort of remnant of a Roman Empire 
We're not sure. Some, something around in the last days uh, that makes us wonder. So uh, my point is they would have been thinking about this and pondering this incredibly in this day. What did this mean for the king to be dumbstruck and fall down in front of Daniel? Uh, and this really, I think, helps set the course for Daniel. I think he understood a couple things right away. Now, you can imagine if our country was invaded and they took away some of our young men and took them to an entirely different area and they were just held captives there for decades. That's what's happened to Daniel here. It's, it's, sometimes it's hard for us to put in perspective. That would have been traumatic. So because of that, I think God gives Daniel here specifically help in understanding a couple things. But imagine early on, Daniel understands that though he is a captive of Babylon, he already knows Babylon's time is short. It is limited. They're going to get wiped out. They're going to be replaced by another kingdom. So no doubt his mind is wandering there, but he's understanding this is not going to last forever. Uh, and then we're going to see here in chapter 9 a couple other things. But there's two other places that I think are important. So turn to chapter 4. It's hard to imagine we're skipping over chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But uh, chapter 4 is, I think, also pivotal. Verse 28. And I'll just kind of summarize for you what happens. God gives Nebuchadnezzar another dream. And Nebuchadnezzar now knows the dream, and he tells his wise men the dream, but they can't interpret it. And there's a question here if they couldn't interpret it or didn't want to interpret it. Because when you read the dream, it doesn't seem like you would need your Ph.D. in philosophy to think that this is probably not good news. So you can imagine why they might not have wanted to give the king the interpretation here. Daniel, though, this does give the king the interpretation. And the dream was this huge tree that had consumed the earth and everything around it had found its shade under it, its fruit from it. And this watcher, this angel comes down and says, cut it down. Staggering, right? But put a band around it and leave it there for seven times. And Daniel here understands the dream, is a little bit nervous. And Nebuchadnezzar looks at him and says, Daniel, tell me what it means. And Daniel says, I wish this was for somebody else because this is not good. But here's what it means. Uh, it means that you are going to be basically taken down. Your pride, God is going to let you know that God rules in the kingdom of men. But there's a chance if you want to break off your sin and your pride. But it says Nebuchadnezzar was in his palace a year later, and he looks around and he says, isn't this the great Babylon that I have built? And it says, in that very hour, this man literally the most powerful man in the world, it says, was given a condition where he wandered around literally like a cow. Boanthropy is the, the term that people use for this. But for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar is literally reduced to the intellect of an animal. And Daniel, in the midst of that, finds himself there covering for the king. And Nebuchadnezzar um, gets his sort of his sanity back, I guess you could say. And 
Verse 28 says, All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the twelve months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. And the king spoke, saying, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from, from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And then look at verse 37. So he's like that for seven years. Daniel, I believe, in the background, handles things so that by the time the king regains his sanity, look at verse 36, actually. This is written by Nebuchadnezzar. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me, and my counselors and nobles resorted to me, and I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, pray and extol and honor the king of heaven. And all of these works are truth and his ways, justice, and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. So incredible scene that Daniel witnesses here. And all of this is sort of interesting because basically what Daniel is experiencing and seeing is God using a wicked kingdom to take captive the children of Israel, something truly historic. When you study history, this is right up there with one the major uh, turns in this area and in world history. And right in the middle of it, God allows Daniel to be there to not only witness these things, but to also be a messenger to Nebuchadnezzar in the midst of this. No doubt to encourage the children of Israel that were there and to be God's spokesman to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in chapter 5 is the last thing I want to look at. You can turn to verse 24. Nebuchadnezzar passes off the scene. There's a series of about three or four rulers that take his place. None of them can really do it. Finally, the kingdom is sort of divided between this man and he puts his son uh, he goes to Arabia to rule in Arabia, and he puts his son in charge of Babylon. And right in the middle of this, the Medo-Persian Empire is rising, and they are being led by a, a man named Cyrus. And during chapter 5, uh, Cyrus and his armies are literally outside the walls of Babylon. And Daniel... At this point, it seems like he's not as involved. Nebuchadnezzar, he was like his right-hand guy. As things kept going, uh, this is 20, 24 years later, it seems like he is not a part of the, at least not a major part of the government. And this man named Belteshazzar, or Belshazzar, comes on the scene, and you guys hopefully know the story. It says he throws a party for a thousand of his lords literally as the enemy is encamped right outside the walls. That was the, the pride and arrogance of this guy. And I imagine Daniel, having gone through all of that with Nebuchadnezzar, can already see how the kingdom, once just this dominant power, now has already been degraded and already weakened. And he can already see this other... You can see the head of gold fading and the chest and arms of silver, like literally right outside the gate. I wonder what he thought. But this king 
says in this drunken party, bring out the vessels of gold that we took from the house of God in Jerusalem. Let's defile them, right? And he throws this just epic, epic wicked party. And it says they all drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood. And you guys know the story. All of a sudden it says he looked and he saw the hand of a man there on the wall. And he began to write this writing. And you would think that this king who had just dedicated this party to all of these gods and all of a sudden this magical hand started writing on the wall. Why wouldn't you interpret that as a good sign? Right? We know why. Because God created something called a conscience. And even though our arrogance or our pride can override that, ultimately God knows how to go down to the level of the conscience. And the king basically freaks out. He just loses it. And he is terrified of this handwriting on the wall. And it says at the end of verse 9, they were all just sitting there astonished. So they bring in... Nobody can figure it out. The queen mother comes in and she says, there's this guy that was here. When Nebuchadnezzar was in charge, he could interpret these things. So they call in Daniel. Verse 13, Pastor Joe makes the point. You don't want to be at the party, but you want to be the one summoned when it hits the fan. When unbelievers freak out, you don't want to be there. You want to be the one they call to help in that time. And they call Daniel in. And he interprets the dream. And in verse 24, uh, he says, here is the interpretation. Verse, uh, verse 24. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him. And this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel upharsin. And this is the interpretation of each word. Mene. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. That's from gold to silver. And Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom, if you read down, Daniel and his three friends. So I apologize for the long introduction, but you can go to chapter 9. Because in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the land of the Chaldeans. So that is the moment here where Daniel now enters into chapter 9, where he's going to get this uh, dream and this remarkable chapter. Uh, and there's actually a couple different things converging at one time. And that's why I want to think through how remarkable of a scene this is. So the first thing is what we just looked at, that Daniel had interpreted that dream of Nebuchadnezzar and God had given Nebuchadnezzar and showed him specifically what was going to happen in the future. And Daniel interpreted it correctly that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were powerful. They were more powerful than any, anyone else. Nebuchadnezzar was that head of gold. But then he just simply says, and after you, there's going to come another kingdom inferior to yours, but they're going to replace you. 
And that's what happened there at the end of chapter 5 and where we come here at the beginning of chapter 9 where Darius the Mede has been given control of Babylon by Cyrus the Persian. So the the Medo-Persian Empire had partnered together. Cyrus was the man who was really in charge and he gives Darius control of Babylon. And Darius now finds himself controlling Babylon where Daniel is. And so Daniel has now, right in front of him, watched the head of gold be replaced by the Medo-Persian Empire, the chest and arms of silver. All those years of wondering, how is this going to happen? And watching the slow degradation of Babylon go from powerful and controlling to less powerful as weaker and weaker leaders replace Nebuchadnezzar until ultimately the weakest leader, this guy, who just freaks out when the handwriting is on the wall. Daniel literally watches these things take place. Now, there's two other things that take place that are happening right at this very moment. Uh, Let me just read to you the first two verses of chapter 9. So, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the lineage of the Medes who was made king over the land of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books... The number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So Nebuchadnezzar had come in. He had taken captive Jerusalem. And Daniel is taken to Babylon, interprets the dream, but says in that day he began to understand because he was reading Jeremiah the prophet that there was a purpose behind this. And God had established 70 years for this to take place. Uh, If you guys go back and study it, the nation of Israel was supposed to take one year off every seventh year and let the land go fallow. And because of a lack of faith and trust, they didn't do it. They kept planting and for 490 years just kept doing it. And God eventually put a stop to it by basically bringing Nebuchadnezzar in and allowing the land to rest for 70 years. And that's where we find ourselves. Now, I'm going to read you these verses from Jeremiah. Just see if these sound familiar to you. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And you will call on me and go and pray, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. That sounds familiar, right? Sounds like something, a devotion we would read in the morning. That message was given to Jeremiah as the children of Israel are being carried away because of their disobedience. Here's the verse before the verse that says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. The verse right before that, this is chapter 29. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. Jeremiah 29 verse 10 says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you. And I will perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So God had allowed the children of Israel to be taken captive. He had allowed Nebuchadnezzar, a wicked king, to conquer the two southern tribes and to take away Daniel and his friends, and this was God's purpose. God had a purpose in the middle of this. So 
three things are happening now. Now, that is a remarkable message in the middle of that. And there's one that I think is even more remarkable that's happening. So you can you kind of picture it like a wheel. And there's three spokes all coming together to Daniel chapter 9. So you've got the, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, transitioning right in front of Daniel. You've got the prophecy of Jeremiah where God says, I have good thoughts to you, but I'm doing this for a reason. And when I'm done with the 70 years, I will bring you back. I'll listen to you. But the prophet Isaiah had said 200 years before this, this prophecy in chapter 44 and into 45, I'll just read it, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you. It's one of the most incredible things in all of the Old Testament. 200 years before the Medo-Persian Empire, Isaiah prophesies that a man named Cyrus is going to come and he's going to take out through the opening of the doors. Now, I don't want to go into it, but if you study Pastor Joe's message through chapter 5, when the Medo-Persian Empire invaded the Babylonians, they they diverted the Euphrates River low enough that they could walk underneath the gates, come up into the middle of the city, and take it without basically, we would say, without a shot being fired, but without this massive battle. They basically just walked in and took over. Isaiah prophesied that. He called it 200 years before that by name. So in Daniel chapter 1, when we read, in the first year of his reign, I understood these things, there's three specific things that are all converging at one time. Daniel chapter 2, the vision is being fulfilled. Jeremiah chapter 29, Daniel realizes, wait a second, it's 70 years, and we're 67 years into this. This is about to wrap up. And Isaiah had prophesied that a man named Cyrus was going to come in and be the instrument that God would use. Incredible, right? So Daniel's mind is just must be blown when he's trying to consider all of these things and the fact that there was a purpose and that God had placed him there for this reason. Uh, So I think it's helpful. Obviously, one of the things we've been thinking about lately is prophecy, right? You see the things that are happening around us, and hopefully in your mind, your mind begins to ponder, what does this all mean, right? We understand the Old Testament. We understand in part some of the New Testament. And I believe right at this point, Daniel's mind, because we're going to see here, well, just look. He says in verse 2, I, I, Daniel, understood by the books that the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Daniel said, I got it. I understood. And what I really want to look at tonight is what does that produce in his life? Uh, I'm not going to get into... The, the back half of chapter 9 is maybe one, the greatest prophecy in Daniel. Uh, and again, I would encourage you to check out Pastor Joe's messages on this. We're going to read it, but what I really want to see is all of these things coming together at, what, uh, at one time, Daniel's response to those things. This prophetic tension, all of these things are happening, and Daniel's looking at it, and he's thinking about it, and he's like, wait, if Jeremiah said that it's going to be 70 years 
from the time that we were taken away, and this is now 67 years into it, Daniel begins to understand, and um, what I want to look at here now is this prayer. So look at verse 3. Daniel says, Then I set my face to the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession. And I said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and his mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Imagine reading the, ver- the, the words of Jeremiah. I know my thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. Imagine what a good word that was for Daniel to think about and then look at his own time and be like, that was the mess. That's the message for us right now, that God loves us. His thoughts towards us are good. He wants to restore us. So Daniel here begins this prayer. Now, if you've studied this, in verse 5, you'll see, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. In verse 6, we have heeded. Verse 7, but to us, shame of face. Verse 8, to us, uh, we have sinned. You go through, and you will see Daniel Now make this prayer and this petition before the Lord, and he includes himself in the midst of this. And there's no record of, when you study the life of Daniel, that he was um, in any way an outright sinner. Now we know he wasn't perfect, but what we're going to see here is genuine humility. And that's the first thing I want to think about here, is when these prophetic things are all coming together, what does it produce in his life? And the first thing is he begins to pray, and he doesn't panic. Now, a month ago, when that, the, the group in Gaza attacked Israel, I may or may not have Googled how to freeze-dry food and keep it for a long time. There was a moment, maybe, where there was a little bit of panic, and I thought, wow, if this is like Ezekiel 38 or World War III or like, you know, there was a moment. But Daniel here, he doesn't panic. He prays. And the context of his prayer, the substance of his prayer, the humility of his prayer is what I want to look at. So he prays, he doesn't panic, and he does so in humility. Look at verse 5. We have sinned, meaning we as a people, the children of Israel, have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servant, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and to our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. Daniel said the problem was not that we didn't know. The problem was that we didn't do. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face. As it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those near and those far off, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face. To our kings and our princes and our fathers, because we have sinned, Against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he has set before us, before his servants, the prophets. 
Yes, and all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us and bringing up upon us a great disaster for under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what was done to Jerusalem. And as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us yet. We have not made our prayer before the Lord, our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept this disaster in mind and brought it upon us. And the Lord, our God, is righteous in all of his works, which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought up your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain because of our sins. And for the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eye and see the desolations in the city which is called by your name. Now, notice this. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and act. Do not lay... Uh, for your own sake, do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people who are called by your name. So Daniel enters into this incredible prayer. He is humble. He is uh, putting himself with everyone else and saying, it's on us. It's our sin. It's our fault. We are the ones. We knew it. And we turned away anyway. We transgressed. We crossed the line. We were filled with iniquity. We were just bent and twisted it's on us. It's not on the Lord. We deserve what has happened to us. But he begins to pray here soberly, alertly, as he sees the things approaching. As he sees these prophetic things all at the door, it gives him a, a humbleness and a soberness. He prays with understanding. He gets it. He understands. And he's earnest. And it brings in him an anticipation knowing 70 years is almost up. Lord, you got to do this. And he, you can almost hear it build by the time he gets to verse 18. Lord, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes. See the desolation, the city which is called by your name. He's entreating the Lord. And we don't present our supplication because we've done anything righteous, but because of your great mercies. He, has this, he senses this anticipation. And I'll just say this, not anger. Daniel could have been bitter, he could have been angry, he could have been tired, he could have been grumpy. He's an old man by this point. He had been through a lot of things. And instead of all of that, as he looks at this, the whole scene and he sees all of these things converging at one time, his anticipation begins to build. He's like, Lord, you got to do this. Not because of us, 
but because of you, because of your mercies. Incredible, uh, I think, response to what he sees around him. Now, let's look at what happens. Verse 20 here. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I had seen in the vision at the beginning being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time. Now, please notice this at the evening offering. That was a Jewish term. That was something back in Jerusalem before the fall. They would offer a sacrifice every evening. Daniel, almost 70 years later, is still putting things in perspective of the temple in Jerusalem. He had been like 15 or 16 when he left. Uh, Incredible. And he informed me, this Gabriel, this angel, and talked with me and said, O Daniel... I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Now, Gabriel, I don't believe Daniel is asking for this. I think Daniel is basically doing his best to understand all the other things in front of him. And now this angel is going to give him another vision to, in my mind, surpasses even chapter 2. This vision that's going to go all the way into uh, where we are, I believe, close this evening. So he says in verse 24, this angel says to Daniel to give him understanding of this vision, 70 weeks or 70 sevens, 77 year periods are determined, notice this, for your people... And for your holy city. So this is determined. This is specifically about the children of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. These six things to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. This angel tells Daniel, by the time this vision is complete, these six things will take place. Notice the first three all kind of describe what's messed up in the world. Transgression, these are all words for sin. Transgression means to draw a line, say don't step over this line, and we knowingly do so anyway. That's what the Bible calls a transgression. So he says to finish that, that will be over. To make an end of sins, which the word there just means to miss the mark. The idea of an archer, aiming but missing the mark. And to make reconciliation for iniquity. Iniquity is that twisted and messed up part in all of us. That if we're not careful, it will lead us the wrong direction. There is something inside of us that is iniquitous. It's messed up. It's warped. It's twisted. It is our sinful nature. Now, he says, there is coming a time when this vision is complete. There will be no more crossing those lines. There will be no more messed up, twisted nature. No more missing of the mark. Talk about just a completely new era, a new kingdom that is coming. To bring in everlasting righteousness. 
and to seal up vision and prophecy, meaning to put an end, put a, a completion to it, and to anoint the most holy. And now this remarkable scene. And again, I would encourage you, if you're not familiar with this, Pastor Joe does an entire study, an hour long, on verse 24, 25, 26, and 27. And that's really what it's due. I want to just read through it and make an application here. But Gabriel's telling Daniel this vision, and he says this, Now therefore understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks or seven seven-year periods and 62 weeks or seven-year periods or 483 years, 69 seven-year periods. Hopefully I'm not losing you there. And in that time, from the time the command goes out, 483 years, the street shall be rebuilt again and the wall, even in troublesome times. Now, if you guys do your homework here or if you read through this, you'll know that the Medo-Persian Empire replaced the Babylonians. Uh, they were there and Cyrus told a group of the Jewish people they could go back and they could begin to rebuild the temple. That was around the time that Zechariah and Haggai are prophesying and Zerubbabel and Joshua go back and they begin to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, but they don't begin to rebuild the city or the walls. Ezra goes back. Ezra goes back to finish the work that had been stunted because of a, uh, some conflict that had come up. But finally, Nehemiah, who is in the Medo-Persian Empire, working for King Artaxerxes, hears about what's going on in Jerusalem, that the city never really has finally recovered, and it's just kind of a shambles, and it's a mess. And God puts it on his heart, and he goes into the king of Medo-Persia, and he says, I want to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. And he says that was in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, which is 445 BC. And Artaxerxes says to Nehemiah, go back and rebuild the walls and rebuild the city. And again, hopefully you guys know this, but as this goes forth, literally to the year this begins to transpire. This clock begins to tick. As Nehemiah travels from Persia back to Jerusalem, he begins to rebuild the walls there. You can read through Nehemiah how that trans transpires. And then look at verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, after all of this period of time, 69 of the 70 weeks, when it's over, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So Gabriel tells Daniel here that two things are going to happen after the 69th week. The first thing is the Messiah, which would have gotten every Jewish reader, their mind would have instantly been locked in on this, shall be, notice he says, cut off, but not for himself. In one sense, it's vague, but on this side of the New Testament, we look back and we think that's perfect. That's a perfect description of what happened, that Jesus was taken, he was crucified, but not for himself. This wouldn't come for, uh, from Daniel's time here. This is 539 when he's receiving this vision, 445 when Nehemiah goes back. This wouldn't happen for 560 years almost. But now we look at it and we think, 
That's a perfect way to describe the crucifixion, that he was cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come, that goes back to Daniel chapter 2, the fourth kingdom of iron and clay. The prince that is to come shall destroy the city. This is the Roman Empire and the Roman legions. They shall destroy the city, that's Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, that's the temple. That took place literally in 70 A.D., when Titus came in and destroyed the city. You guys know the story. They set the temple on fire. The gold began to melt, and they began to take apart the temple brick by brick to get the gold out of the creases in between the stones as it began to melt. And this army shall take it, and it shall end with a flood until the war of desolations are determined. So... Of that prophecy, 69 of the 70 weeks lead right up to where Pastor Joe is this coming Sunday, the crucifixion. And then uh, verse 27 now is, I think, where, like in verse 1, where Daniel's reading Jeremiah, and he's like, man, how does this is, you know, he kind of senses what's going on. In verse 27, believers now, ever since then, have looked at this and thought, when is this going to come? We ponder this, for, this verse. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, this final 70th week of Daniel. And in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate until the, the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So Gabriel tells Daniel here there's one last week of this 70-week prophecy. And in the middle of that week, uh, it's going well, to begin when he shall confirm a covenant with many. I believe that goes back to verse 24, to the people that this was prophesied about, the nation of Israel. For one week, one last period. And in the middle of that week... He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. Now, uh, I'm not going to turn there, but if you go to Matthew 24, Jesus says, his disciples come to him and says, when will the end times be? When will we know? What will it look like? And Jesus goes through several different things, but he says one of the ways you'll know is in Judah, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Using this verse right here, he says, Then know and understand what's happening right then. And he describes what we call the tribulation, and specifically the second half of this, which we would call the great tribulation, or the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, And he describes how this man, this he, which after the book of Revelation is written, we understand to be the Antichrist, is going to come in and confirm a treaty And he is going to start out as a man of peace, and then he's going to commit the abomination of desolation. And for this final three and a half years, uh, it says there is tribulation on the earth such as has never been seen before or ever will again. And Jesus says, right before that, he says, be careful because of the iniquity that runs forth, the love of many grow cold. And so I just want to make this final sort of application. Daniel chapter 2, he sees the 
dream of Nebuchadnezzar's vision, right? The head of gold, the Babylonian Empire, the chest and arms of silver, the Medo-Persians come in, the Greeks who are the belly and the brass of bronze, the Roman Empire split into two, iron and clay. And then it says, and until I saw a stone that was cut out without hands, and it hit the image so hard right in the feet that it just shattered. And that stone became a mighty mountain and consumed the entire world. In other words, God was showing Daniel, these human governments are going to come, and they're going to be powerful. (laughs) But there's going to come a time at the end where God's kingdom is going to come, and what's going to happen to the human governments of the world is going to be like this stone smashing it, so obliterating it that it says it just is taken up by the wind and whisked off. And when you go to Revelation 18, it says when the, the judgment comes on Babylon, it says that, the, that men stand there with their mouths open, looking at it and saying, can you believe this? In one hour, desolation has come. In one hour, God has judged this entire world system. So we find ourselves somewhere in between there. Right? Somewhere before the stone is cut without hands. Somewhere before verse 27 of chapter 9, where we can sense the anticipation. As Daniel began to sense from Jeremiah, wait a second, this is coming. This is almost here. God had a purpose in this, and we can see this beginning to transpire. So I just wanted to leave you with this. When Daniel began to sense that, there began to build in him an anticipation, not anger. When we look at the world, you can either anticipate God's kingdom coming and all these wrongs being made right, or you can get angry. Jesus said, when you see the lawlessness that's going to go on, the love of many is going to grow cold. We don't want to be like that. We want to be like Daniel, anticipating, saying, wait a second, I understand God's purpose here, and I understand this is... At the door, does it create an enduring or a panic? We should be able to look at this and be able to endure. It says Daniel went throughout all of these earthly kingdoms here, and he humbled himself and prayed and said, Lord, it's our fault. It's our sin. Rather than saying, those, these guys, it's their fault we're here. It's these conservatives or these liberals or these this or these that. He said, Lord, it's, it's on us. This is, this is us. You are wise. You are holy. All of us are full of iniquity. We're messed up. He was humble. He was earnest. He was sober. And I believed he was able to respond in that moment uh, the correct way. And I would just encourage us, as we look at some of these things, and it kind of freaks us out, and we look around and we're tempted to just get angry or we're tempted to panic a little bit or we're tempted to, uh, we want to be like this. We should be sober. We should be anticipating. We should be earnest, not angry, but anticipating. So let me close there with that. We'll close here with the last song. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you for your faithfulness in the life of Daniel. Lord, thank you for giving these scenes to us, Lord, to be remembered. Lord, you alone know where we are in all of this. You alone know, uh, Lord, what you have for us. But, Lord, we desire to 
Live in such a way, Lord, that we would be a light to this generation. Lord, that we would be anticipating your coming kingdom. Lord, that day when your kingdom replaces the kingdoms of this world. Lord, we believe that's your will. Lord, do a work in our hearts. And we pray in your name. Amen.